talking about faith uh, all day, and it's, it's been reiterated several times that living your faith or keeping your faith is a daily struggle. And it's not just a daily struggle in your youth. It is a daily struggle that you will deal with throughout your lifetime. And we've tried to kind of, in one way or another, impress upon you that we are in a war, and we have to be warriors. We have to be good soldiers for Christ, because our enemy, our enemy wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your trust, your allegiance, uh, your reliance, your commitment to God. And so today's lessons have all been designed in some way to get you to thinking about your choices, about your decisions, about your faith, and what you need to be doing now to fortify yourself for the times that you will hit that dip, where you hit these spiritual lows in your life. Truth is objective, and truth is objective because truth is not created by man. Man is not the one who creates truth. And yet, all of you, particularly your generation, you know, part of my generation, but your generation has been growing up under philosophy, a global cultural philosophy of postmodernism, which basically says there is no such thing as truth. And because there's no absolute truth, therefore, there is no standard to measure things. And so no one gets, gets to tell you, you know, this is right or this is wrong. And so they project this thinking. And so what happens is kind of what happened in the days of Judges, where everybody just does, you know, what's right in their own eyes, you know, whatever it's good for them. And so, for example, uh, people decide their own mor- morality because, you know, we're postmodernistic in our thinking, and so it's all relative. Uh, and so everything's subject to change. And so this philosophy of postmodernism, and it's all around you, whether you know that term or not, promotes, promotes this idea that all religions, all gods can and should be tolerated, except, except the one that says there is a right one. And so God becomes whatever a person wants God to be. And so the bottom line of that is then, what does that sound like? Idolatry. It's whatever whatever God you want to be. And so you basically build your own God. And so in a sense, we are living in a time that is no different than in the time of the New Testament. When you think about the idolatry of the Athenians, the Greek culture, the Roman world, the paganism that prevailed in that society. We live at that time. And a product of that is another term that, you know, maybe you haven't heard, but it's called pluralism. And what that basically says, well, there is multiple gods and there are multiple lords and there are multiple faiths and all of that needs to be accepted. Everyone and everything should be tolerated except except the one that says there is one God, one Lord, one faith. And when you live in that kind of culture, the end result is you don't have anything really to stand on. 
There's nothing solid that you can build your life on. And so we live in a culture, maybe some of your own friends talk this way, and where they're, they're, not really, they're not concerned about what God has said. They're not really concerned about what pleases God. It's more about how does, how does my faith, how does my religion make me feel? And, see, and so we become our own standard. And that's postmodernism. And so people are more interested in that kind of thinking. And what's kind of saddened and and scary at the same time is more and more baptized believers are thinking this same way, where they also are really more concerned, well, what is the Bible, how does the Bible speak to me personally? Or... How does it validate my preferred lifestyle? Now, that's not their wording necessarily, but that's how they're using their faith and their their religion and everything basically to live under a philosophy of postmodernism. And so that's why we have selected this particular topic. Give me this on here where we're going to discuss the idea of the bedrock faith. And so you need to know what that is. You need to know who that is. And the idea that, you know, the solid rock that was going to stand and remain firm under you no matter what changes around you. Now, time testifies to the fact that There will be, and there already are, opposing winds that are blowing against you. You're facing it in school. You're facing it already in your school, school. and maybe you face it sometimes in your workplace, where there are these winds of postmodernism and pluralism that are blowing against you, battering you, battering me, to see if we will be able to withstand And so we live in a world of uncertainty, a world that is constantly changing at alarming rates, and man-made fortifications, they will not stand. It's all going to change. It'll be something else, something new, supposedly, that will be of no value to you. And so, therefore, we need to understand that we need to root ourselves, we need to ground ourselves in the bedrock faith of God. And so we're going to look at three components and, and, and basically supply you know, arguments and defenses for these three points. That there's one God, there's one Lord, and there's one faith. Not only do you need to believe that, and you hold on to that, hold the line, make, it, make these things your core regimen, and be equipped to, you know, for your hand-to-hand combat, but also you've got to be able to know assuredly This is the truth. This is the absolute truth. And no matter what happens, no matter what attacks come against you, you will not move from these fundamental foundational ideas. That there's one God, one Lord, one faith, and that will always be the truth. So let's talk about the first one. The idea of God. He is He is the true God. He is the living God. And as mentioned here in a song of Moses, it's a song of praise, where he says, the rock, talking about God, Jehovah, the rock 
His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. The people that Moses was singing or speaking this song to were people who had witnessed and experienced on various occasions, in a real sense, the hand of God. They saw the hand of God in amazing ways with their own eyes. That God in Moses' day, that God that entered a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, that God was and still is. He is still the immovable, powerful rock. And that's where you need to stand. No matter how strong the winds batter against you, no matter what, what you know, you're hearing through education or through your friends or through media, no matter what the world says, you need to know that this rock is still the rock. Now, he's intangible. He's unseen. But just because we cannot see it doesn't mean that there is not reasonable and trustworthy evidence that argues for his reality. And that's what you need to have. You need to have a defense of the reality of God that holds up your faith. And so you may not always use someone else's argument, but you need to have equipment, you need to have the weaponry that knows, you know, these things help me to know assuredly God is. And so we need to think about the evidence. And that's where, like I say, and today, just touching on it very briefly, But take, for example, the existence of the cosmos. That is, the effect of our universe demands, and this is kind of familiar to you, but just because of familiar doesn't change the power of the argument. The cosmos exists, the universe exists, and this effect demands that something or someone caused it. We believe and we profess God is that cause. And so I'm going to ask David Toronto if he would read Romans 1, verse 20 and 21. Read out loud so everyone on this side can hear you too. Yeah, you can yeah, just pull it down if you need to. Thank you. All right, so we're being challenged here. Look at the evidence. You know, God doesn't call us to be gullible, naive in our faith. God calls us to to weigh the evidence and know the surety of that. And so the point is, even from a scientific viewpoint, you know, the arguments, you know, know, even outside of the biblical text is that, that there is logical conclusions that our universe had a beginning. Now, the explanation of the beginning may vary, but there is, there is scientific facts that state our universe had a beginning. A couple points of that. One, for example, you know, the idea that our universe is a, in a constant state of expansion. And so if, it's in a, if that's the direction it's going, it's, wonder, it, it's expanding. So it had, it had to have a beginning. At some point it started, and then it's been expanding ever since. So that's one scientific fact. A second scientific fact is the idea of the second law of thermodynamics, and that is basically we live in a closed system, 
And in this closed system, our universe, it is also in a constant state of decay. While it's expanding, it's decaying. And so once again, there was a beginning point. You know, you know most in the world reject God as the cause, as the beginning point. But the point is, anything that it has, is shown to have a beginning, and even in, in the scientific you know, circles, it is shown that our universe had a beginning. So anything that has had a beginning was caused by something or caused by someone. Another argument that you could use, and that is that all around us is design and orderliness. Well, that demands a designer, a maker, just like all your cell phones. You know, your cell phones don't exist today just because there's been enough million, billion, trillion years passed, and finally various elements came together, you know, and those elements are able to fit together and work in such a way that now, now you've got a little box that you can communicate with. Well, well, we recognize, no, our cell phones did not come into existence simply by chance. It took intelligence you know, to use the resources properly, it took intelligence to do that. And so our universe presents that argument. All around us, there's design on every kind of level. And we suggest to you, God is the ultimate designer and he is the ultimate maker. And Joel Bain, would you read Psalm 19, 1 through 6? Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. I'm going to ask you a, th- a thought question. If, if we happen, and, and y'all answer, uh, if we happen to find a well-ordered campsite, a well-ordered campsite, you know, out, you know, it has a tent, it has a cook stove, it has a, a fire pit ring. I mean, it is a perfectly put together campsite in the middle of a, an extremely remote wooded Wilderness, just out here, suddenly disappears. What would be your argument? How did that get there? Huh? So was that chance? Or was that intelligence? Intelligence, right. And we recognize that. Just because we don't necessarily see the paths that, you know, and we don't have, we find, we come across, and here is this order and design. We know, okay, I don't know who did it. I don't know how it happened. But yes, someone did this. Design put this together. I I would suggest to you, planet Earth, planet Earth is the ultimate campsite in the extreme reaches of a vast universe. That's what our Earth is. God put it together. I want to illustrate one aspect of design, and that is water. Water, as we know, is essential. It is essential for life. And, that, you know, and our water supply on earth 
is necessary, but is also one of the strangest substances you know, on earth because it's like no other thing. And so what you have here, you have this H2O tetrahedral structure that allows the solid state of water to be less dense than the liquid state of water. Why is that so important? Why is the solid state so vitally important to be less dense than the liquid state? Someone, yeah. What would happen if it was denser? What if the solid state was denser than the liquid state? What would happen to the oceans and the seas and the rivers? What would happen to it? It would sink. There would be some displacement of water, but eventually it would sink, and then what would happen? What would happen to the ocean? If everything, if, if it sunk and it was freezing from the bottom up, what eventually would happen? Everything freezes, and everything freezes, everything dies. But that's not water. Water is, is this unique substance that in the solid state, it's, it's lighter because of how it comes together. And so here it floats instead of sinks. You know, and so you think you have that aspect of water, but at the same time, it serves as a thermal con, uh, conductivity. It's, it, it serves to provide this temperature stabilizer on earth. And so while, yes, it floats and doesn't sink, and so as, as, it, as the oceans and lakes freeze on top, what's about, what about the temperature's below. Yeah, they're stabilized. And because the temperature stabilized, life forms in the water live. And then, the, and while you have that you know, stabilizing aspect, then you have this whole light of the coolant properties of water that enables us to keep our bodies cool enough by perspiration. All because of the structure of the water molecule. And how you know, H2O is joined, and how all of those intricate little parts joined each other to form either the liquid or solid or vapor state. Design, see, that's design. There is a quotation you know, that I came across. You know, it's by an atheistic philosopher named Anthony Flew, who, who said, now he was converted to believe in intelligent mind, that there's an intelligent designer. He, he, he converted to that. He does not believe in the biblical God. He doesn't believe in that there, there's one true God, as you read in the Bible. But he has converted from saying, okay, everything's by chance, and now... No, everything points to an intelligent mind. And this is what he says. The only satisfactory explanation for the origin of such indirected, self-replicating life as we see on earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. And so, here we live in year 2020, and we live in a time where people want to tear down things, where you know, there are attempts to remove historical facts, you know, there, there are movements to redefine the family. You know, people just want to turn everything upside down because they're tired, of the, you know, they're tired of the tried and true. They want something different. They want something new. 
But God, the unchanging rock, cannot be changed. And man may try to ignore him. Man can reject him, but you cannot cancel him. He is and will always be God. There's one God. That's bedrock faith. And so like the, like the psalmist says here, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. But God the Father is not only our rock. You know, you have the aspect of the Godhead, particularly coming through in the person of his son. And here you have, you know, the fact, you know, you need to consider Jesus is the one true Lord. He is also our bedrock faith. Uh, it's unquestionable that Jesus of Nazareth was an historical person. <laughs> yeah. you know, even people who don't believe in him and don't profess him, you know, cannot deny the fact he was an historical person. He was, he lived, he died. The real point that becomes the clincher, he now lives forevermore. That's where it really begins to change. But you take Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and then Jesus responds to that and replies, he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jehovah God is the rock, but so is Jesus Christ, who is the one Lord. Jesus, on one occasion, was asked by disciples of John the Baptist this question in Matthew 11. Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? So disciples of John came and said, hey, are you, are you the one we're looking for? And what Jesus does in his response, he, get, he says, go and report to John what you hear and see. And he says a little bit more about some of the things you're doing, the miracles you're doing, and, and so forth. But he very briefly says, you go back to John, you know, God's servant, John, who prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Go back to him and tell him, and tell him what you hear and what you see. Jesus is relying here on evidence. He's saying, I want you to look at the evidence. He expected them and expects us to listen to what he has said and to look at what he did. Very quickly, turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. Quick, I want you to fill in the blanks here. On another occasion, Jesus makes the statement about how, you know, you know to build faith, you have to have evidences, and he says, I've got the evidence. To build the faith that I am the one true Lord. And he says, if I alone about myself you know, testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so he's saying, okay, don't believe me just because I said it, is one way to look at that. If I am the only testimony about myself, then okay, my testimony is not true. But he's not, is he? And that's the point. Jesus says, there, there are other testimonies that back up what I am saying about myself. And so you look at these verses very quickly. In verse 33, what was the first testimony? Who's, who's the first testimony about who Jesus is? John the baptizer. Remember? John, John, John 1, John 2. He says, the Lamb of God who takes, the sin of the, takes away the sin of the world. He says, John has testified by me. Verse 36, who else? Or what else? No, that's a little bit later. Verse, uh, verse 36. Is it? Or did I get my, my notes wrong? 
the works, the miraculous works. You say, you know, you got John testifying about me. You've got what I have done, the miraculous that you have seen. Then in verse 37, Keith, the father's testimony. Where's an occasion where the father, the father testified concerning Jesus? Give me an occasion. His baptism, yes. He spoke from heaven. So you have, a, so you have that testimony, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. See, he goes now down to verse 39. What else witnessed or testifies of Jesus? The scriptures. So you've got the inspired word of God. And then finally, you know, a very specific aspect of scriptures, he says, what? Moses' writings. And so here you've got, you've got five different testimonies. Jewish law stated how many, you know, if you're going to confirm a matter to be truthful or factual, how many witnesses do you need? Two to three. Is one enough? No. Two to three witnesses, at least. How many, how many does Jesus have? Just five? He has six. He has his own testimony, and he's backed up with the other five. And so Jesus is calling for, for us to recognize our faith is built on evidences. Don't let the world shake you when they start throwing out these doubtful sayings which are based upon deceit and falsehood. The lordship of Jesus Christ is based on evidences, and we have testimony to back that. For example, the scriptures even suggest that as well. But the greatest proof, though, the greatest proof about the lordship of Jesus is his resurrection. That is the final proof, and that is the strongest proof of who Jesus is. And that's why you have a couple passages very quickly here. In Romans 1, where it says, in the beginning of that book, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who declared the Son of God with power by what? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lordship of Jesus ultimately it's confirmed and proven to us. The final you know, stamp of proof that we need that Jesus is the one Lord is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul preached in Acts 17. We, uh, you go back to Athens again and all the good lessons that are there for us to, to consider when you're talking about this kind of study, about training for the struggle, fortifying your faith, you know, reproving your faith. Acts 17, listen to what Paul says. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, God said it, we should do it. But God says, but I've given you proof that you better do it. And he goes on to say, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by what? What does he say there? Read it. By raising from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate, it is the final proof that there is one Lord. That is bedrock faith. 
And so when you think about the, the case for the resurrection of Jesus, it's really, it's a case for Christ. It's a case for the Son of God. And this case is built on knowable facts, facts which both believer and unbeliever, facts that believer and unbeliever can accept and agree on. Now, the ramifications, the applications, and the spiritual significance of it, the unbeliever will not accept. But these facts can be agreed on even by the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. The reason why? Because these are historical facts based upon documentation, reliable testimony. And that is, first of all, Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus was buried. Jesus' tomb was found empty on the third day. Disciples of Jesus grieved that death. Disciples believed they saw Jesus alive again. Notice that the wording there? Can the, can the unbeliever agree the disciples of Jesus believed they saw? Yes. See, they can agree on that point. An unbeliever may not uh, believe that, but the disciples did. And he goes on to say, okay, disciples are willing to die for that belief because Jesus was raised from the dead. And then you have skeptical James, skeptical, skeptical Saul, who were converted to Christ because of the resurrection. Any alternate explanation to explain away this, any effort to explain away the crucifixion of Jesus, any explanation to explain away the empty tomb is an admission that something momentous occurred that needs explaining. Why, do, why does the unbeliever, why do all these people who are anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-the Bible... Why do they keep throwing these attacks? Because something occurred that needs explaining. And, they just, and, and they're going to reject God's testimony. They're going to reject the testimony of Jesus. Here's an interesting thought. The apostles and early disciples did not believe Jesus Christ was raised from the dead just because they saw the empty tomb. The empty tomb is not the biggest argument. Even among the apostles, even among the early disciples, for example, in Luke 24, remember when the women, Jesus appeared first to the women, and the women run to the men? Someone in your own words, tell me what, what the men's reaction was. Yes. Yeah, Y'all, this is crazy. They didn't believe it. And here you got, and it, like, there was nothing about the character of the women that suggests that they were, that, you know, they were liars. But the men, you know, even among the apostles and disciples, the men were slow to believe. So just be, and, and so you have Peter and John running the temple, and they see it. So did they automatically believe wholeheartedly? No. So the empty tomb is not the point. It was necessary. It's part of the necessary equation. But it's not the final and ultimate proof. The proof is this. The proof is personal firsthand experiences. Eyewitnesses. Real-time witnessing of the resurrected Jesus who bore the marks of his crucifixion. That's the strongest testimony. And you have scriptures going back to you know, uh, reproving ourselves. Remind, this is the ultimate stamp that gives, gives your faith the bedrock solid footing you need. 
Joshua, read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So in this account of, of Paul retelling and reminding Christians about the evidence of the resurrection of Christ, you know, is there just one testimony? Is it just two? Is it just three? No. It's multiple, multiple witnesses. He says, and so here is, just like Jesus said, go and tell them what you have heard and what you've seen. And the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, disciples of the, resurrection, the resurrected Christ is the final proof that we stand on. And you need to think about Acts 2. You've got the preaching of the gospel for the first time. You know, they're in the day of Pentecost. And it is this testimony. They talk about, you know, you put him to death. God raised him up. And he, in verse 37, he says, and we are witnesses. You know, the 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 argument or the defense in that sermon, the point that finally drove it home was this. We are witnesses of this Lord, this Christ that you crucified. God raised him that. That's why he's Lord. That's why he is God's anointed one. Now, as a side point, you know, these witnesses, eyewitnesses, their willingness to die, what that does, it just shows the intensity of their faith. Liars make poor martyrs. Liars make poor martyrs. Now, it is not reasonable to think that these followers died for a lie that they invented. Now, there are many people who die for something that is not true, but they believe it's true. The point about you know, the apostles and disciples of the first century is you know, suggesting they, they invented this whole thing. They knew this was a lie. Well, no. They said, we saw him. We were with them. And so it doesn't prove the testament. It just intensifies and supports the fact you know, they would not have died. They would not have suffered all that they suffered for something they invented. No, it was a lie. Because their claims were based on what they had seen. And so Keith, read first John chapter one, one through three. So, 
The resurrection is the final stamp, the final proof of evidence we need that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. Now, this resurrection, though, is key. It's key also to accepting the lordship of Jesus in your life. Without the resurrection, your faith is vain. Your faith is empty. Your faith is powerless. With the resurrection, it's everything. And so you think the resurrection, because the resurrection, it should convince you and me, it should convince us all to confess Jesus as Lord. Because he died and was raised and now declared Lord, I should be willing to confess that because of the resurrection. But not only do I need to confess it, I need to be willing to submit to it. See, a lot of people want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they miss the point of it. They miss the application of that because the lordship of Jesus is all about him becoming your Lord and my Lord every day. The resurrection convinced you to confess it and to submit to him. While at the same time recognizing he has ultimate, he has the, he's the source of ultimate authority, he, it is he who conquered death. And as a result, you are now born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1. It is the resurrection that gives your hope life. See, that's the impact of the lordship of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And therefore, what you do as a faithful Christian is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Your labors in Christ are not in vain. And so Jesus is, is the same yesterday and today and forever. But thirdly, the one revealed faith, the one revealed faith is also an essential component to the bedrock faith on which you must build your life. And you must stand on and hold the line on when you are getting beaten and beaten and beaten. Jesus, in in the Sermon on the Mount, says here, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's the rock of this verse? The rock of this verse is the words of Jesus. That's the rock. You're building your, your life on the words of Jesus. You're acting according to the words of Jesus. And when you do that, the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow and they slam against your house, but your house is not going to fall because you founded your house, your life on the rock, the words of the Lord, the Son of God. So we need to be reminding ourselves that the words of Jesus are a solid foundation, and it has proven itself time after time after time, and they are the words that are going to give you entrance into heaven. John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Jesus' words will do that. And so there's power in those words. You know, there, is, there are you know, the promises. Think about all the promises that God has made to you. Throughout the scriptures, those promises are not going to change just because circumstance change. And so there's been one faith revealed. Jude 3 talks about once for all, this faith has been delivered. And so there's been one faith who's been revealed now for all men for all times. And that faith is described in a number of places when you think about that. For example, Galatians 3, that faith has come through Jesus Christ. The system of faith which justifies the sinner that believes 
has come to us through Jesus. That's what Galatians 3 is all about. But then over in Romans 10, 17 tells you that we do not know what to believe to be saved unless we listen to the word of Christ. Faith comes by what? Hearing. But hearing what? Hearing the word of God. Not hearing postmodernism, not listening to pluralism, not listening to the world, but hearing the words of God. And so there is, you know, there's authority in what Jesus has revealed to us. And the point is, that authority means Jesus, as Lord, has every right to command you and me. He has every right to do that. He has every right to tell us what we can do, what we cannot do. And he has every, has every right to expect us to do it, to obey him. And thirdly, and it's, he has every right to hold us accountable to that. Accountable to his word and judge us accordingly. And that's exactly what Jesus, the point Jesus was making in John chapter 12, verse 46 through 48. Kate, uh, Mason, would you read that, please? Thank you very much. So, there are not many faiths that are acceptable to God. There are not many faiths that are right before God. There's only one. It's the one that has been revealed by God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, by means of the work of the Holy Spirit to or through His apostles and prophets. So that's the claim the Scriptures make. The question that we, then, that we need to ask then is, are the Scriptures we have reliable? You know, the Bible and the versions you have in your lap. Can, can you count on that? Well, uh, eternally, the argument is made, yes. Why? Because all Scripture is inspired. Unquestionably, the Bible claims that. The Old Testament claims that, and the New Testament claims that, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. This word, theosnustos, literally means God breathed out the Scriptures, it is from God, and it is, if it's from God, it is effectively and reliably able to equip people of God with what they need. If it's from God, and that's what the Bible, the Bible says, this is from my mind, this is my will. And Peter basically harmonizes that same argument in, in, there in 2 Peter 1. When he says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of what? Human will. No you know, true prophecy was, was ever made by an act of human will. But men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from whom? What does it say? They spoke from God. And so when God inspires something, okay, when God, when God inspires something, is it right or wrong? It's right. How often is it right? 100%. It's never wrong. And so when God inspires something, that, that inspired message was not going to allow, it's not going to lead you down a wrong path, a false path. So the question is, you know, is about inspiration is this, well, you know, what's, what's the nature of it? Well, you know, Leland touched a little bit on this in the idea where all Scripture, 
All portions of the scripture are trustworthy. The complete revelation of the Bible is accurate. All of it. And that's what the argument Paul's making in 2 Timothy 3. But not only is it all inspired, but also it is verbally. Words. The words convey exactly what God intends or desired to be revealed. For example, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about the words of the faith. The words, plural, of the faith. See, that's God-inspired. Or you think about in 2 Timothy 1, he said, it talks about sound words. When God, when God inspired the prophets and the apostles, it was sound words. It was words of the faith. Yet now he used, he used human agency. He used human language to do that. And that's where we turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. Caleb, read that real quickly. Thank you very much. All right, so that's the argument Paul's saying. Okay, what we have is from God, and it's not just generally from God, and, and man got to kind of you know, choose this and that. No, the Spirit guided. Men spoke as they were guided by the Spirit. Now, we're not talking about your version. You know, the very words of your version are divinely spirit, but talking about the, the original manuscripts. And so in our each language has to try to find the best words that translate the true message of what God has spoken. Now, the thing is, okay, that's, that's what the Bible, Bible makes this claim, but do we have the evidence for that? Yes, you do have the evidence that it holds this biblical claim. Now, stay with me. It's getting hot in here. It's a lot of information. We're almost done. You're tired. You know, I get to talk, and so I'm awake, but if I was sitting in your seat, I'd be asleep too. So, so stay awake me, you know, with me and as we kind of cover this thing, and really, I am just throwing out a lot of information to you that basically is to say, hey, guys... You have the bedrock faith. Don't walk away from it. And so you take the uniqueness of the Bible. The unity and the harmony of the scriptures is unique in the fact that you know, what it says about God, what it says about the plan or scheme of salvation, you, know, you think from Genesis to Revelation. And so you have a time that spans approximately 1,500 years roughly with approximately over 40 writers. And there's harmony. There is unity in all that. Can men do that by themselves? No. So the uniqueness of this biblical account, the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is a library of ancient books written by men centuries ago. And God wove that fabric together. Fulfilled prophecy, only God can infallibly foretell events in the distant future. Then you've got historical accuracy, but also you have, G, you have Jesus' validation. You think of the idea, if Jesus is Lord, and he is, resurrection is proof of that. Jesus is the one Lord. 
And if he's Lord, what Jesus said is accurate, it's correct, it's authoritative. So now that's the claim of the Bible. And so we want to kind of end with another kind of evidence kind of argument, and that is, can we trust the Bible documents? Can we really trust what we have? Do we have reliable uh, ancient manuscript that su- manuscripts that support our modern versions? You know, what the scholars use to translate what we have in our modern language, is, is it reliable? Well, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, it is. But very quickly, we're going to run through some questions. And then like, this, is like, this is like a quick overview. And you're not going to remember all of this. But I, but I want you to know, be assured. You're talking about the best preserved ancient document in its entirety in this world. There is no other ancient document that is as well preserved as the New Testament. The New Testament is even better preserved than the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is well preserved. But basically, there are 10 10 questions that historians will kind of use to examine ancient. And these are questions not just used for the Bible. These are used for any kind of ancient document. So you go back, you know, other, you know, you got, you know, you know writings, you know, supposedly of Caesar. You know, any ancient person that, you know, you talk about from long, long, long ago, these are questions that are asked. And first one they start with is, do we possess copies that are reasonably close to the originals? Now, we don't have originals, but is it reasonably close to the originals? Well, you have a picture here of what is called the Rylands, the, you know, the Rylands Fragment. It is a fragment of a portion of the Gospel of John. This fragment dates to about 50 years to its original composition. There is nothing ancient document-wise that comes even close to this. Now, this is just a fragment. You have complete New Testaments that are are within like a 300-year span of time. And that is still amazing. And that's just two examples. There are thousands of examples that are used. You talk about manuscripts, you talk about ancient translations. And so the New Testament is the best preserved document. Do not allow you know, the world that throws these you know, jaded statements out and say, well, you really can't trust the Bible. Yeah. It is the most trustworthy even historically as a document. Another one they will ask, did the authors intend to convey reliable history to the readers? Was their intention to, re, to, to basically tell history correctly? Okay, Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4 is the introduction. Okay, in the introduction of Luke, what does basically Luke say why he's writing? Anybody can tell me real quickly? Say it again. <laughs> Right. Luke is not an eyewitness. And so he, he's collecting evidences. He, he's, he's, he's meeting with those who, who have been eyewitnesses. And he says, I want to you know, write down an orderly account of what has truly happened. That's just Luke. But clearly Luke's intent was to make sure whatever history is in there is accurate to its time. And then you continue with these questions. Were authors in position to know what they were talking about? You think about Peter. Peter, we are told you know, in, in 2 Peter 1.16, you know, he was an eyewitness. Peter was an eyewitness. You know, so what, is he reliable? Well, he's writing as an eyewitness. 
Uh, think about what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, he was a kind of later eyewitness in a unique way, but even before he refers to himself, what does he do? He refers to all the other eyewitnesses. So Paul pointed to people who saw Jesus alive after he was dead. And so these men are writing you know, in a position in their, that, yes, they, have, they know what they're talking about. Now, did the author's bias distort historic reporting? Everyone has some bias, even when you're trying to be as objective as possible. You know, we are affected by our values, by our faith. And that's not bad. And so, that, and so that's the question. They want to say, okay, did the author's bias distort historical reporting? You know, the writers in the New Testament were passionate about what they, what they believed. But why would they risk their lives for stories they knew that was not true? Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you're not telling the truth. You know, why tell this history? Why tell this story knowing it's going to get you in trouble? See? And so the point is, no, their bias did not distort their teaching. What about this? Are the reports consistent with what we know about eyewitness testimony? You know, there are incidental details, particularly in the, in the Gospels, about personal names and, and places that reflect first century Palestine and supports its historical reliability. The details that are there, it's not just brushed across. You know, you have political leaders that are named. You have regions that are named. All of that is to suggest this is historically reliable. Here's an interesting one, a question they ask, is there self-damaging material in documents? You think, oh, I hope not. There is. And what do we mean by that? Well, that is, if there's self-damaging documents, then it's more historically reliable. It has greater historical integrity because, you see, this author was not just trying to gloss over problems. What happens when people try to rewrite history? Often in, in historical accounts, who wrote the history? The winner. The winner. And the winner didn't always paint the most accurate description of itself. And so it, with, with the New Testament particularly, is there self-damaging uh, material? Yes. Take, for example, Jesus' family. Did they all believe in Jesus at the beginning? No. They didn't all believe in Jesus. What, what about, uh, you know, you think about the apostles. Did, did the apostles, followers, the closest ones, Jesus, no, they just got along perfectly. They, they behaved themselves Christ-like every moment. Did they? No. Yeah, they were sometimes extremely immature men. And to the point that you have one who betrays him, and you have another who denies him. Yes, they're self-damaging, but that enhances historical integrity, historical reliability. Then you have this. Are the documents reasonably consistent with other documents that tell about the same event? Take the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you read those and study together, are there times in that you have slight variations, slight differences that are kind of a little hard to kind of, how does that all work together? See, You know, Yes, you know, there is some these variants, but the point is, when you study that carefully, there are no true contradictions between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Variations? Yes. But no true contradictions, no inconsistency. And you think about when, 
The gospel was first revealed and first being professed. What manner or what avenue of communication was used? Go ahead, say it out loud. Verbal, oral. And so everything about the gospel confirms that these gospel, this message fit you know, what it was intended to do. It was intended to be first an, an oral cultural context. And so the testimony is consistent. It was intended to be basically, and even when, you, when they started writing down the, the, the first manuscripts, you know, how did the rest of the Christians you know, hear it? Did they all get their own copy? No. They heard it. And, so, and there's, so there's no contradiction there, even though there's variance that sometimes presents a question. Quickly, we move on. Are the recorded events believable? Well, once you believe in God, that God is, God exists, once you believe God is sovereign, then there is no problem. There's no problem except that he can and he has and he does intervene and communicate with his creation, and particularly with those who are his image bearers. God has talked to us through his son. And then you get kind of closing this off. Number nine is, is there any other literary evidence that establishes the reality uh, of what's recorded when you examine it? Yes. There are non-Christian sources, such as Thales and Pliny, Suetonius, Tacitus, Josephus. Those are all historians who are unbelievers, not very favorable toward Christianity, but what they do briefly mention always corroborates with New Testament accounts. Always. And so, th- so there is, once again, there is reliability. And finally, archaeology. How does that fit into it? Well, archaeology, with those findings from antiquity, what is they are consistent with what we read in the Bible. Every time they find something new, even now, that fits within the biblical context, context whether Old Testament or New Testament, when they find it, there's, there's always harmony there's unity with the accuracy and the, and the reliability of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired of God. And so that's why this particular, and this is an old quotation in a book called The Bible and Archaeology by man Kenyon, where what he says, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence. So basically, the original to the closest fragment, you know, manuscript, translated version, you know, that interval between those becomes so small. This is from a scholarly viewpoint, textual criticism. It is so small as to be a fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity as well as the general integrity of the books in the New Testament may be regarded as finely established. You can trust so your versions, you know, your versions are good translations of, of what God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible can be trusted. Think about that. The Bible can be trusted. Your bedrock faith. And the reason why is because therein is the God-inspired one faith. Not multiple faiths. Not multiple ways to get to God and get to heaven. There's one faith that's revealed therein. And that's what's to be believed. 
Because that is from the one God who spoke to us and executed his plan through the Lord, the one Lord, Jesus Christ, his son, who is now both judge and savior of man. And so as you go out today and you take a nap, <laughs> yeah, but you, as you face your future, you know, our, 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 over our goal here as your, as your brethren and as, as your teachers today was simply to remind you, to reprove you, that you know, hold the line, you know, make sure that you, know, you, you know, use your core regimen, you know, be equipped to you know, make those hand-to-hand uh, combat you know, exercises. Don't, don't retreat because you have a rock that is unchangeable. It's God. It's Jesus Christ. And it's the one faith that will get you to heaven. I appreciate very much all of you coming today. Thank you so much. Uh, the, the auditorium classes will be you know, posted on, on, you know, on our website. You know, we only record it in here. Uh, so maybe encourage, encourage those you know, who were unable to attend you know, today's session to go back and study. For the young ladies, I know y'all had an exciting time in your classes. I know you had good teachers and so you might want to kind of share all the things that, you know, that you learned that, you know, that, you know, with your sisters in Christ and your friends you know, as, as we try to encourage one another to walk faithfully to God. We're going to end in prayer, uh, and I'm going to ask Leland to close off. But before we do that, I want to make one announcement. How many have your phone on you? Everyone? Okay, pull your phone out. Hard to believe that. I will not do this on Sunday. <laughs> Put your phone out. Open up your calendar. Go to 2021. 2021, September 25th. So you got to scroll. <laughs> Isn't that annoying? At least that's how I found it. I got to keep on scrolling. <laughs> okay, okay, 2021. So next year, September 25th. Mark it. Mark in your calendar right now, Lord willing, September 25th will be our annual young adult study. You know, the last weekend of September has been set aside you know, by our eldership that basically we, we reserve that weekend each year, Lord willing. So go ahead and mark your calendar, put it in, start now planning <laughs> to be here Start now encouraging your friends. Hopefully, next year is going to be better. We will send out greater announcements and try to get more people involved in this kind of study. You know, we really believe in the, the edification and the fellowship we have on this day. It's beneficial, not just we feel for y'all. It's, it's great for us teachers. It's always an upbeat thing, and I'm grateful to be part of that. So go ahead and mark your calendar. Have it in there so it's there. You know, maybe six months, have, you know, have a little thing come in, you know, saying, you know, don't forget, six months, you know, remind you, you know, it's coming up, you know, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you know, putting on your fridge kind of thing. Great. Y'all have a great day. Rest up. Get ready to worship together tomorrow.